Okay, so this is our uh, third Sunday in the lockdown of services we're having. And um, today we are looking at the beginning of, of time and life. And, um, you know, there are lots of people that face critics, and God faces uh, the most critics of all. There is a, a disaster like we saw this week in Lebanon with a giant explosion. People say, you know, God could have stopped that. Or if someone you love and care about is struck down with an incurable illness and they die an early death, the pain is great. You want to lash out at God or like your own guana. It's just a massive natural disaster like Hurricane Dorian. It hits so many people and people can ask, you know, why did God let this happen to me? I heard a story about a pastor who was on television. He wrote books. He was very much in the public eye and he would receive horribly scathing letters from time to time, just hate mail. And it was very discouraging to him. He did not know what to do. He spoke to another pastor who gave him an idea. He decided that the next time a letter would arrive, he would write back to that person. This is what he would say. Dear sir, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I want you to be warned about something that is happening. It's outrageous. And I want you to know that your name should not be damaged by what is happening. But there is a lunatic writing the most dreadful and hateful letters with disgusting things written in them. And he's signing your name to them. And I just wanted you to know. We all have critics and God has a lot. But today we're going to look at how he answers those critics. Let us have a word of prayer to begin. Father, we are so very grateful that you do not leave us in the dark. You do not leave us without hope. That you come to us in our affliction, our trials, and our troubles. And you pick us up and you walk with us and you guide us. Help now, Lord, as I bring these, your words, your holy word to your people that our minds would be open to you, that these words would be your words, Lord, that they would pierce our hearts and we would be changed and be better and different than when we came in together for this worship time. So please bless us. Give us your attention undivided. and May your spirit change our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen. There are four big questions that all seekers of truth must address. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And today we'll touch on just two of these questions, origin and morality. From your beliefs about the origin of our reality, we are guided to set up the boundaries of our moral and ethical interactions with each other. And that leads us to the purpose for our existence. And with all that, we draw out the conclusion about the destiny of all life. How did all this stuff come about? Why am I here? How am I supposed to behave? while I am here, and ultimately, what happens when I die. And my goal today is not to engage in a scholarly discussion about the Bible. My goal is to grow your faith in the reliability and relevance of the scriptures. So, how did all this stuff get here? And how are we supposed to behave while we are here? We'll start in Genesis and look at the creation of the world in general, in chapter 1, and then specifically at the creation of man, and of Eve specifically in chapter two. And then we will look at the fall in the Garden of Eden in chapter three. So when we start in Genesis chapter one and verse one, we see those familiar words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A contemporary and supporter of Charles Darwin, Herbert Spencer in 1820, he gave the world five scientific principles by which man may study the unknown. And they are time, force, energy, space, and matter. Five ideas that science can investigate regarding the evolution of the cosmos. Time, force, 
action, space, and matter. Let's go back to that first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, that is time. In the beginning, God, that is force, created, that's action. The heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. In the beginning, God provides all the information categorizing all the areas of our physical existence that we can observe and measure. God set these parameters because God made these parameters. Now Moses, by inspiration, gave us those scientific principles, time, force, action, matter and space in Genesis 1-1. All of Spencer's scientific principles are right there in the first verse of the Bible. Let's look at the second verse. The earth was without void, or was, was without form, an empty wasteland, and darkness was upon the face of the very great deep. The Spirit of God was moving, hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. When God speaks, things happen. What happens when you speak? Well, we make noise. And what is that noise? Well, that noise is a sound. And a sound wave is produced. It is a reverberation that is made. Sound is the energy that things produce when they vibrate and they move quickly back and forth. A sound wave is created by setting matter into regular motion. Now, I am convinced that when God spoke, a reverberation went forth. It started rattling everything into existence. And today, every atom in our universe is still reverberating from his initial command to come forth. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word. One translation says every careless word. Another says every useless word. Another says every thoughtless word that you speak. In John 6, 3, 6, 63, Jesus said, the spirit gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. What kind of words are you speaking? We know that everything we see, touch, breathe, and taste is made of atoms. And those atoms are in constant motion. Do you know that electron and neutron that are bound together, making up the floor beneath you, they are traveling at 1,367 miles per second. That's fast enough to travel around the earth in just over 18 seconds. The world around you is still reverberating at an alarming speed. In Genesis chapter, verse, one, uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, God saw that the light was good, and he approved it, and God separated the light from darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it was evening, and it was morning, one day. Please notice that this is a 24-hour day, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. For those who want a struggle to reconcile the six days of creation with the 6,000 years of recorded history and balance that with the 13.8 billion years of observable time in our universe, tune in on Tuesday. I tell you, there's no conflict. All of these time frames correlate and they do not contradict each other. In fact, they validate each other. Now, let's skip down to verse 26. And God says, let us, the Hebrew there is Elohim, that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image, our likeness. Let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame beasts, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In his image, in his likeness of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In verse 28, God blessed them and he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Subdue it, using all its vast resources in the service of God and man. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, every flying and living creature that moves on the earth. The biblical creation account reflects the natural observations of astrophysicists. Light is the first thing that's detectable in the universe. The scientists who deny the existence of God, deny the deity of Jesus, refuse to embrace the reality of the supernatural and embrace the idea of a big bang being the first motion in the universe, all agree that from the first nanosecond of existence, light was the first observable aspect of the universe. Ask the university professor at the astronomy department of any secular university, asking this, what was the first observable aspect of the universe after the Big Bang? And he will say, the universe was flooded with light. Robert Jastrow agrees with this as well. In fact, he's a self-described agnostic, a leading scientist. And he said, let me quote this, the seed of everything that happened in the universe was planted in that first instant, every star, every planet, every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of the events that were set in motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. The universe flashed into being. We cannot find out what caused that to happen. I disagree with that. I believe we can find out. Steven Weinberg, a Nobel laureate in physics, says this. At the moment of this explosion, the creation of the universe, the universe was about 100,000 million degrees centigrade, and the universe was filled with light. And this is true. The universe was flooded with light at the start of the cosmos, but God was the instigator of that event, not the universe itself. Today, secular scientists like Stephen Hawking want to say the universe created itself. That's very clever. But the idea of spontaneous generation was put to death by Louis Pasteur in the 1800s. The theory of spontaneous generation states that life arose from non-living matter. Louis Pasteur is credited with conclusively disproving the theory of spontaneous generation. He subsequently, Louis Pasteur said this, life only comes from life. Dr. Pasteur was right. Life does only come from life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The account of the start of our physical world, recorded in the first chapter of Genesis, agrees with this observation. Light was the first thing God called into existence. It's truly startling. If Moses made up the creation story, why not start with water? First there was water, and then all life, the trees and the plants, the animals, and man came out of the water. Moses grew up being told the water of the River Nile was sacred, and it was to be worshipped and sacrificed to. This text of scripture, 3,400 years old, this parchment written by these ancient and the critics of the Bible would say primitive folks who without the benefit of a telescope or an atomic super colliding machine could so accurately depict the start of the observable universe. It is fascinating. It is as if they had inside information from a source close to the events who supplied them with these details. Well, that is of course exactly what happened. God told Moses the story of creation. If Moses had written the story of creation from his own experience, for his own education, it is more likely he would have reflected the leading centers of science and education from his day. 
Moses was educated in the palace of Pharaoh in Egypt. He was, he was taught to believe the dung beetle was a god. The sun was a god. The river Nile's a god. The cow is a god. This was the beliefs of the leading minds of his day. But Moses writes what God says. Moses is the ghost writer, and the Holy Ghost is the author. For no prophecy was given or produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Now this is just the tip of the iceberg, day one. Each day of biblical creation account reflects the observable aspects of our natural world. I hope this will give you greater confidence in believing and trusting what the Bible is that is a unique among ancient and sacred texts. It stands out. Now, I wanna take you to an additional aspect of the creation narrative and weave the scriptures with science and morality and try and apply them to our daily lives. When we turn to chapter two of Genesis, God has given us a general view of creation of people. And when he gets to chapter two, he wants to go into greater detail. Now this is the pattern of scripture where God gives us a large overview on a subject or an event. And then he goes back and he wants to zero us in on some specific detail for us to look at. In Genesis chapter two and verses 15 and 17, God has made Adam from the dust of the earth. God made the garden of Eden. God placed man in this perfect environment. And he said, you have only one rule to obey. Now, please remember, I've told you this before, but I want you to remember it. NASA, the people who are so smart, they send rockets to the moon. Ames Research Center has verified that within each of us is found all the elements of the periodic table. Every fundamental building block of material that is mined out of the dust of the earth can be found in some quantities in each person. So when God said, you are made of dust, it was quite true, and science has validated the scripture. Another proof of the creation narrative, God formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed life into his nostrils. Let's continue in verses 18 through 25. God give man's a, gives man a helper, Eve. In verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. In verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, anesthesia. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and he closed him up with flesh. It sounds like surgery, doesn't it? And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought it to the man. Eve here is made from the rib of man. Now, if you do a word study in Hebrew for that word translated rib using, and here's my big tip for you today, blue letter Bible. Blue letter Bible. The Blue Letter Bible is a free app. It's a free website. If you go there, you can see the meaning of any word in your scriptures, what it means, how it's translated, where it's used. It's, a, it's, a, it's an encyclopedia of, of Bible study knowledge. If you go to this site and you look up that word that's used for rib, the Strong's Concordance lists that Hebrew word is number H6763, T-S-E-L-A. Not Tesla, but T-S-E-L-A. And that word means this. It means curve, a series of beams or planks, a structure. Now you can draw your own conclusions about this word. This is the only place this word is translated rib. There is another Hebrew word you choose for rib and it's not here. Now, for me, I see how the Hebrew word uh, salah 
would be translated into rib. If you look at a human skeleton, there's only one place that looks like beams and planks and is curved in the human body, and that's the rib cage. But when I think about the human body and how it looks, that curved series of planks, they do come to mind if you live before 1953, when Watson and Crick showed us the model of DNA. In 1953, Frederick, Francis Crick and James Watson described the double helix structure of DNA, the fundamental bullet building block of each of us. DNA is a fine spiral coiled thread in the nucleus of every living cell. When it's magnified for us to see it, the model looks like a curved ladder structure, planks and beams curved and connected. Now scientists who specialize in cloning tell us that the best portion of a person to remove as the base material for building a human clone would be the rib of a person. The rib can regenerate and regrow if it is removed. In September 15th of 2014, Francisca Mariana, the University of Southern California, a researcher, she found that when they removed the rib cartilage but left its pericondylium, the missing section entirely repaired itself within one to two months. So when Moses writes that God took a rib from Adam, how would Moses have known that the rib could regenerate? He would not have known. God knew. The section of rib gives you an ideal amount of genetic material as well. So for me, I see God taking not just a rib from Adam, but also DNA to make a copy, a helper, a suitable clone for Adam, someone to come beside him. Now let me just tell you how fearfully and wonderfully crafted you are as God formed you in the womb and planted and planned each of your days. Each person has 10 trillion cells in their body. If you were to stretch out your DNA just the DNA and you alone, it would be 744 million miles long. The moon is a quarter million miles away. The sun is 93 million miles away. Your DNA within you can stretch to the moon and back almost 1,500 times. It can go to the sun and back four times. Furthermore, if you took that and uncoiled it, flattened it out, that DNA, it would be 10 billion miles long. At that point, it would reach to the edge of the solar system, visiting Pluto 17 times and back. For me, the complexity of the human body is an overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. The DNA within you is a code. It is a program. It informs your cells how to behave. All instruction and teaching and training comes with intent. Someone who writes an instruction manual does so with purpose. Do you not? Do you know that every cell in your body, within each cell, there exists a very detailed instructional code, like a miniature computer program? Two blueprints, one a blueprint of that cell, and the other a master copy of the entirety of you. As you know, a computer program is made up of ones and zeros. The way they're arranged tell the computer program what to do. As complex as they are, computers work off of only two digits, a binary code. The DNA that makes you up and me is that code has, within each of our cells, is very similar. It has four chemical digits. The scientists abbreviate this as A, T, G, and C. There are three billion of these letters in every human cell. Did you hear that? You have 10 trillion cells in your body. There are three billion letters of information in every one of your cells. Every three seconds, 
50,000 cells in your body die and they automatically are replaced. And you and I never pick which ones die or which ones are replaced. Just like you can program your phone for a, a beep to make a specific, a specific reason, DNA instructs the cell. DNA is a three billion letter program telling the cell the way to act at a certain time. It is the instruction manual. So why is this so amazing, one may ask? Well, how did that information get in there? Into the human cell. These are not just chemicals. This is chemicals that instruct, that code in every detail, every way that your body works, develops, grows, and responds. Natural biological causes are completely lacking explanation. When programmed information is involved, you cannot find instruction, precise information like this without someone intentionally constructing it. Now, I want to quickly draw your attention to chapter three as we close out today. Now, I don't know when the last time was that you held something in your hands that was most precious and irreplaceable, and you mishandled it, and you broke it, you shattered it, you destroyed it, maybe because of what you did, or maybe because of what you did not do. Now, this is exactly what's about to happen in Genesis chapter three. God has made two perfect people. He's placed them in a perfect world, and they make a perfect wreck out of it. They ruin it. Now, sometimes we ruin things or people. We wreck relationships. Even our good intentions, we do it. But God does not leave them hopeless. Even in the wreck and the ruin, God promises a rescuer, a reconciliation, a redemption of all that they have lost. Now, God has told Adam in the garden, I have provided you with all that you need to eat, all these trees in Genesis 1.16, the Lord God commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in this garden. But you must not eat from this one tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do eat from that tree, you will certainly die. One rule, not 10 commandments, not a system of 613 laws like the Pharisees developed, just one rule. And in chapter three of Genesis, the cunning beast of the field comes into the garden and he says to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? When Satan comes, he first gets us to question the word of God. Is creation true? Did God make light? Did God use dust to make us? Did God use a rib to make Eve? Did God say that this activity really will kill me? Today, his strategy for each of us is the same. Satan gets us to question God. He gets to establish, we, to establish our own standard of right and wrong. And he gets us to doubt God spoke the world into existence. And you know the story. Eve is deceived. Adam is complacent. And in a matter of moments, the entire universe is ruined. Yes, the entire universe is ruined with decay. It is called entropy. It is the second law of thermodynamics. It says that all systems tend towards decay. Every atom in this universe is slowing down, slowly winding down. Even the speed of light itself is growing slower every time it's measured. This place is winding down. When God comes to the garden, at the end of that terrible day, he confronts them with their sin, and he pronounces consequences to their disobedience. He curses the serpent, and he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
The tempting deceiver of Eve is told one day the seed of Eve will come and crush her head. The head wound is a mortal wound in battle. Now, if you think about this verse very quickly, the biology of this new family, you will recognize there's something wrong with the curse. Because Eve has been given the egg for offspring, and Adam has been given the seed for offspring. So why did Moses write it wrong? Or did God tell it wrong? No, the text is correct. Here we see the first indication of the virgin birth, the rescuer, the man born of woman and not born of man. And why the virgin birth? Because sin, that lethal virus has infected the very blood that these two possess, is coursing through their brains. Adam will provide the sin-contaminated blood of DNA into the conception of the first child. And that sin-contaminated blood, and they have to reverse the curse. But only holy, pure, uncontaminated, divinely infinite blood can be shed to erase all that has gone wrong. Furthermore, it says this, Satan will bruise the heel of this redeemer. And in fact, doctors will tell you today that when a person dies, all the blood that once circulated in their body is drawn by gravity to settle at the lowest point in that person's body. And this is what happens. It causes the body to appear bruised. It's called lividity. Levorum mortis postorum lividity. That's Latin. Postmortem after death. Lividity, black and blue. Hypostasis. When Jesus died on the cross, if you had been there, when his body was taken down from that cross, the blood would have settled in his legs and his feet and his heels would have appeared bruised. You, Satan, you old serpent, you will bruise the heel of the rescuer, but he will crush your head. He will kill you, Satan. Now, just think about that garden. What happened that day? God had made a beautiful and perfect world. The animals lived in harmony. There was no crime. There was no want. There was no need. And these two, they ruined it. And in verse 21, God made clothes for Adam and Eve from animal skins. Animal skins are made from dead animals. So an animal was slain that day. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Revelation 6, 13, 8 talks about the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, if God can extend forgiveness to these two after all they have destroyed, is there any crime or crossword, a malice intention or emotional wound or physical pain that we cannot forgive another? The God of the garden is still reaching out, promising a rescue. He's promising a redemption. He's offering a reconciliation. And I don't know what you have ruined or what you think has ruined you, but God still offers that redemption. God is still seeking that reconciliation today. Surely no matter how precious and irreplaceable, whatever it is that has been ruined, even if that precious and irreplaceable thing which was ruined was ruined by you, how can you not reach out and live in forgiveness? After the first day of sin in the world, every atom in the universe was filled with decay, like an old garment breaking down and withering away. There's a point where the universe will slowly wind down. It will come to an end. And that day we will face God and he will ask us how we have done with the forgiveness he has granted us. 
The Apostle Paul says that all creation groans under the curse and waits for liberation. Forgiveness. Peter came to Jesus in Matthew 18, and he said, how many times do I have to forgive this lousy brother of mine? He keeps offending me. Seven times? Now, Peter asked this thinking he was exceeding the law and achieving the perfect answer to impress God. But he did not impress God. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And not over a week or a month or a lifetime, but in the course of a day. The idea here is that we extend grace and forgiveness to others because the perfect amount of forgiveness has been extended to us, a limitless flow of forgiveness. Now, please don't hear me wrong. If a person is in circumstances, in a situation where there's physical and emotional abuse is occurring, get out of those circumstances, out of that situation, seek counseling, seek help. But a person can extend forgiveness at a distance without being in the place of harm's way. The forgiving heart is not the sign of weakness. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of healing. It's when you understand how much grace has been given to you, you can reflect that grace back to others in a real way. Let us pray. Father, we are so very grateful for the evidence that you grant us of who you are and how true your word is and how much you love us. And we are so very grateful today for that grace, that forgiveness you have extended to Adam and Eve and to each of us. Help us, give us the power to extend that grace to others. Even in the most horrible of circumstances, fill us with your spirit so we can reflect you to others. In the name of Jesus, I ask it to be done. Amen.